Welcome back to the Racial Draft Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Terrell Ford, joined by my semi-regular co-host, Marquis. Uh, we're f- oh, Marquis, say, say a few. Sorry about that. Oh, no, no worries. Happy to be here with you guys. Um, having my usual corona, because if you can't beat it, drink it, is the motto. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, I'm uh, keeping it uh, somewhat dry this week. I'm, I'm drinking just a little ice water. Unacceptable, Mike. Yeah, uh, you know. Um, happy Father's Day to everyone out there. I mean, obviously, you'll probably hear this after fa- Father's Day, but, you know, Father's Day is sometimes a mood more than a day anyway. So, uh, you know, we, I don't think we have many fathers being drafted this week in the racial draft, but, you know, I'm sure everyone's got daddy issues. Co-sign. <laughs> Hopefully everybody's spending some time with their family at a minimum, um, trying to bring some joy in these, these interesting times. Right, for sure. Um, and, and as always, you know, um, you know, our hearts go out to all the people who are um, still out there protesting for justice. We're, you know, we're with them. Our, um, yeah, well, our support at the Racial Draft Podcast knows no bounds. Absolutely. Keep at it, guys, and um, we'll keep doing what we do. And, you know, guys, if this is your first episode of the podcast, uh, apologies in advance, because normally we have a lot more voices than we normally do today. It's just me and Marquis, you know, just kind of old school in it. Woohoo! Early days. Yeah, exactly. Go back but, to the first show. Go back to the first show. <laughs> we rambled. But uh, we'll try to keep our rambling to a minimum. But, you know, for the, like I said, if you're, if you're new to the podcast, the idea is that we're trying to uh, re-diversify uh, the comic book, various comic book universes by race-bending characters according to, you know, kind of a sports style or fantasy sports style uh, draft, snake draft, and the uh, different groups get to uh, pick their characters and recast them as they, as they see fit to a certain extent. Uh, the idea of sort of improving on these, these characters, original origins through um, adding these layers of diversity and culture. So, uh, you know, on that note, let's hop in to uh, round seven. We are seven rounds in. Yeah, making progress, right? Getting ready to snake this thing all the way back around in the other direction. Yeah. Um, are there any picks that really hopped out to you, Marquis, or would you rather have me go kind of pick by pick? No, actually, Mike, um, for this round, one really jumped out at me, and it's the first one we're going to talk about anyway, Catwoman. So I, if you want to just proceed in order, I have some thoughts on that. Okay, well, cool. Um, so yeah, uh, the first round of round seven was uh, Selena Kyle, Catwoman. And they actually, um, uh, this group, this, this week, the team fan cast, uh, Nicole Scheringer, whose uh, background, I believe, is a uh, Hawaiian, Filipino, and Ukrainian. But uh, Kia, the captain of the multiracial team, threw an Egyptian based on the idea of, uh, you know, Egyptians worshiping cats. Um, so, you know, it's a, it's a nice multiracial mix. Um, it gives her, you know, obviously a, a darker hue than we're used to with uh, classic depictions. But there have been some depictions of a Catwoman as a Black woman. Um, so this, you know, does a, a, a decent job of kind of multi, you know, adding, adding different racial elements and giving her, um, you know, as, as Kia would say, a little more flavor. Well, to be fair, Mike, I, I would actually argue that a couple of the depictions of Catwoman were basically multiracial in the black, white mixed sense. If you go all the way back as far as Eartha Kitt, who was of mixed race parentage, black and white. And Halle Berry, of course, same thing. Oh, yeah, good point. This, this pick made me feel some sort of way because I was like, oh, 
this character has already been bent historically. And for those of us who are sort of randos in the comic book space who don't know as much, the one thing that we do know about is Catwoman. So it's exciting to see her get picked. It's exciting to think about my memories of Eartha Kitt on the old Adam West, Burt Ward, Burt Ward show when I was a kid. Well, wonderful and exciting pick. Yeah, I mean, one, one thing that's always been interesting in, in the depiction of uh, Catwoman as uh, whether the, the, diff, the dichotomy I've seen in the depiction of her being uh, depicted as a white woman versus being depicted as a non-white woman or a multiracial woman is that they play up the romance with Bruce Wayne a lot more when she's white. Um, you know, when she's black, she's more of a, a seductress, kind of a femme fatale, right. um, just more generally uh, sexual, but not um, romantic. Um, so it, you know, in, in terms of melding together this, this new version of Catwoman, one would hope that all the steps that they've made in terms of uh, kind of fleshing out Selena Kyle as both, you know, her own woman, but also um, having this kind of star-crossed lover thing going on with Bruce Wayne, um, would, one would hope that they could um, complete the, uh, square the, square the, the circle, as it were. Well, I will say there's sort of a trend in modern day advertising to have interracial relationships, but to not address race, race at all in those relationships, which is sort of a frustration for me and every single Chase Bank, Bank of America, Wells Fargo banking commercial now. These companies that have historically participated in loads of discrimination across the years are all of a sudden on the bandwagon for Black Lives Matter, but somehow not address, addressing race at all in commercials specifically targeting those communities. So I get exactly what you're saying. This sort of romantic race bending was probably, I won't say impossible during the Adam West Batman time period with Eartha Kitt because Star Trek was doing a little bit of that, but certainly taboo and certainly a bit more risque than I think that show would have been willing to do at that time. Right. And yeah, and we would be remiss if we didn't mention that um, Zoe Kravitz will be playing uh, Catwoman in the upcoming uh, The Batman movie um, sometime in 2021. Um, well, probably 2025 at this point. <laughs> that, that, that's true. Um, so, you know, I think, I think the, you know, in a sense, the multiracial team is, is ahead of the curve uh, or maybe with the curve because this is something that's happening IRL, as it were. You know what? This show always ahead of the curve. I would say creating the curve, Mike. Yeah. And, you know, if we're, if we're looking at it from a FCL's point scoring perspective, you know, Selena's pop, popping up in books, in Batman books all the time. In general, Batman characters that are very close to, to Batman get a lot of points because they get a lot of kind of random appearances in the various books. Um, she also has a solo book that I don't believe is ending anytime soon. And I think there is a Batman and Catwoman book that is was expected to come out at some, sometime in 2020, but at this point, will probably come out in 2021. So she's going to have a lot of scoring opportunities. She's going to do a lot of things. They, they find a way to have her win battles against, uh, one would argue, uh, more superior fighters just because of uh, guile and wiliness. And I don't see that ending anytime soon. She's an extremely popular uh, character, probably one of um, the more, you know, 1A really after the Joker um, in terms of popular Batman villains. I have to say it, Mike, perfect pick. 
And on that note, we have we have to transition to this number two pick, uh, the number two pick of the draft. That was, of course, selected by our fan poll. So shout out to everyone who voted in the, in the fan poll. And, you know, we're st- apparently we're staying in the world of Batman, you know, because uh, the people decided by uh, let's see what the final margin was. It was it was extremely high um, in terms of what what ended up happening. I think I want to say it was like 60% of the votes. Um, as, did you know this character was that popular with people? Yes, I did. Um, I didn't know that she would be popular in terms of, uh, oh, 67% of the people chose uh, for the Native American team um, to draft uh, Poison Ivy. Um, and Poison Ivy is a fascinating character over, over the years you know, her, her characterization has kind of changed from a very sort of one-note seductress-type character to one with, with complicated motivations. Um, I know she's been embraced um, as a feminist character. Um, I know that one of the big things for her in recent years is um, as far as her, her pairing, her romantic uh, pairing with Harley Quinn as one of the more prominent LGBT couples. Um, her origins, you know, like I said, it's, it, it's kind of shifted a little bit it, or in the earliest, early days, you know, Pamela Isley is her, her secret identity name. Um, and, you know, she was a famous botanist who got, uh, there was some sort of magic to, you know, a rare, a rare Egyptian artifact that gave her uh, immunity to all poisons and the ability to control plants. Uh, in 85, when they did sort of one of their, uh, recurrent reboots in the DC. They made her a botanist who was studying under the, um, there's another character who's related to Swamp Thing. You've heard of Swamp Thing, yes? Yeah, I know a little bit about the Swamp Thinger. Yeah, so there's a character named Floronic Man uh, who is uh, one of his kind of enemies, uh, antagonists, we'll say. Um, he also uh, experimented a little bit on, on Pamela Isley. And uh, by experimenting in her, he, he, he drew, drove her insane. And uh, when she came out of that, of that insane coma, um, she also had the you know, same powers, ability to influ- uh, control plants, to influence men with her pheromones, resist toxins. And, um, you know, uh, this, again, this is over the, from the 80s on. And it's, it's in recent years, probably about the 2010s or early, uh, early 2000s under Gail Simone that uh, the character kind of has become more of an anti-hero akin to, akin to Magneto. Uh, you know, she's pro-environment, uh, pro-protecting uh, the weak, but maybe very willing to kill people and, uh, con- and control the minds of people in order to exact her ends. Um, our friend, uh, m- sorry, our friend Joaquin, who's the captain of the Native American team, he, uh, he had a very extensive origin that he uh, got in under the wire, so I should uh, give that give that its due. Let me get to it. I was thinking about this character, Mike, mm-hmm. in that I was wondering how far ahead of the curve or with the curve was this character on the climate change issue. Um, that's a good question. I mean, I think given given where she was in terms of probably still oriented as a villain. Um, it was probably sort of like climate vengeance more so than, um, you know, where we, where we are now, where it's sort of incumbent on us to be, uh, to be environmentally conscious and to know that we've got to do what we can to protect the world. But um, 
yeah, let me jump in and let me jump into Joaquin's story. Uh, humankind has become ignorant and arrogant, placing themselves above all else. Mother Earth sees this and becomes angered. Out of all the muck, the trash, the chemicals, the poison spread in her soil, she creates a daughter, one of impeccable beauty. She gives her daughter a mission. Restore the balance, Mother Earth commands. Yes, Mother, she replies. She's given the power of plants, not only plants, but the power to control animals, the power to teleport to any place on Earth, power to shake the Earth, to move mountains, to erupt volcanoes, able to turn herself fully human, to reset the balance, people must die. Giving the Justice League a reason to stop her. Her skin acid green, her hair, her hair the, the color of sunset, her eyes the color of the oceans, her weakness, fire. Her purpose, the purpose to purge the earth of anyone who would do her mother harm. And as she makes her presence known, the people gave her the name Poison Ivy. So what did you think about this uh, reimagining? I love the reimagining. I think it, it sort of fits in with what this character has been, at least sort of in my head. Mm -hmm. Historically, I, I, when I was a kid, I loved stories sort of about Mother Earth, Living Earth, mm -hmm. Mother Gaia protecting Earth. And that makes perfect sense given sort of the things that we're facing in modern day times. So I think this twist works. Right. I mean, the only knock, I guess, from, from my perspective is that, you know, I kind of like the idea of her as a scientist, um, that, you know, her powers uh, were, more, were more scientific in nature um, because it ties into having intimate knowledge of what the plants can do um, and being able to, you know, given that a lot of kids uh, read comics, maybe uh, spark an interest in flowers um, and, and botany, um, having someone who's that knowledgeable about what the different um, varieties of plants can do and kind of drawing on that in terms of um, how important uh, plants are in, in modern medicine, you know, to have, so even though I really like the, um, the magical and the sort of the spiritual elements of the origin, I kind of wish there was still the scientific, the melding of the science, um, given, you know, especially like you were saying with climate change, it being such a science uh, based idea that having someone who can point to the science of uh, what the, the effect of what's happening in the, in the pollution of the, of the world, you know, could, could have on, on, on both the planet and all the living things on it. Did you get any insight from Joaquin on why he took them? Because I don't see that these backgrounds need to be mutually exclusive. Do you know why he took that out? Um, not sure. I mean, I'm sure as we, you know, um, maybe Joaquin will hop on. That reminds me, I should probably give people the opportunity to, to hop on. Um, you know, we'll see what guests we might get in the next, in the next hour or so. Stay tuned. Anything could happen. Anyone could pop in at any time. Exactly. Um, you know, obviously, he he um, he he told essentially your origin. So there's a there's a lot else that could happen. You know, maybe she takes the form of Pamela Isley and goes to school um, to become a botanist, and everything sort of flows from there. Where she has both this divine mission and this uh, mission as a scientist. I could actually see that, Mike, because really looking at it, I don't see any reason why the particular portion of her backstory related to her, her education has to be completely exclusive from this new origin story. Right, and one thing that I had said that I found kind of interesting uh, in, a, in a funny way is that, um, you know, in her, her classic origin, she's kind of a, 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 bot, a full, full blown botanist. Um, and then later she's more of a botany student and then even later, she's a college student. 
so it's it's a shame that they're you know in these different origins they're kind of dumbing her down a little bit you know i'd rather her be this world-renowned uh botanist and successful in her own right um and being you know having that kind of agency and being driven um rather than being kind of taken under the wing or the, the victim of more powerful men you know? Well, then I, I guess my only counter to that is we're taking one step forward and one step back at the same time because we are sort of making the characters less hypersexualized in the modern iterations, correct? Yeah, I mean, that's a good point, you know, but it, but it almost, it's, it's like, I, I've seen this sometimes in order to make a character more sympathetic um, and, you know, more, un, more misunderstood um, as, as potentially heroic trauma ends up being seeded in her past so that her um, her villainy, as it were, or at least her extreme measures are a function of of the victimization that, you know, she experienced in her past. So I'm not sure whether, I, I, you know, again, it, 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 it's, it, it could be problematic. It's just a matter of how, how the stories get written around those around those uh, limitations, I guess. Well, I'm sure Joaquin is comfortable with this critique at this point <laughs> and more than willing to come on and <laughs> take it head on once again. Of, of, I'm sure. I'm sure I'm sure a feminist critique of Poison Ivy is, <laughs> is exactly what. <laughs> I imagine he chose the character with that critique in mind. <laughs> right. Um, and let's actually, I think we got a fair amount. Yeah, I should have, I should have been checking. We, we, Definitely got a fair amount of positive feedback to the Poison Ivy pick. So let me jump in on that. Um, or maybe we got a lot of, actually, we just got a lot of positivity on the nomination of Poison Ivy. Right. As, right. You know, just as, as it came in. So and we, she dominated the poll, right? So that yeah. makes perfect sense. Exactly. And uh, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that the Catwoman pick got a ton of positive feedback. Uh, my, um, Sorry, um, Tomati, one of the captains, uh, said it was a great pick. Uh, Annie, our uh, Jewish captain, said uh, she, you know, she was happy about the Ukrainian aspect. Uh, our friend, uh, what's his name, uh, SW the Dokken Saga on Twitter, uh, said uh, sweet. Uh, Martin Sanchez said it's a good pick. Um, there were uh, some other people who were throwing up thumbs up and they threw a lot it. of twitter love out there a lot of twitter love out there if you're fr- you know if you're you're hopefully you're following us on twitter at racial draft pod um you know on twitter on facebook on instagram um you know it's racial draft on facebook uh, look look for our page and you know we're 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 eager to to give you an outlet for your feedback and you know there was definitely a lot of positivity for these first two picks and you know look girl power for for those of us uh, you know who are interested in that um, and, you know, moving on, that brings us to the third pick, which is uh, the Polynesian team. And that was our friend, well, uh, Tomati, our friend Tomati, who's popped into the show quite a, quite a few times. He brought it, as he always does, with, his, with both his reimagining and a fan cast. Uh, he, so he drafted uh, Fire Lord. And, and Mike, before you jump into this character, let me just say... I try to do sort of a good job of hanging with you guys on these various picks, even though sometimes I know I don't have the knowledge base that everybody else has. For this character, I have no idea who this character is. I'm just going to admit it for the entire universe out there. Never heard of him. He looks a little like an anime character in the pictures that I'm seeing on the Discord. 
So uh, I'm eager to dive into the story, the backstory, and why this is a great pick. Have no knowledge whatsoever. Not ashamed to admit that. Well, let me give you a little background on as far as his origin. I'm not going to get into, you know, you can check marvel.com and see sort of the filled out version of the origin. But basically, uh, you know, so his original name was Pyreus Krill. Uh, He was a naval officer on the Zandarian uh, ship. And he encounters Galactus. And, you know, as Galactus tends to do, he finds people and he turns them into his heralds to aid him in the devouring of worlds. Um, he does that for, he does that for Pyreus. He gives him, uh, you know, he gives him that power uh, of turning him into Fire Lord. And you know, unlike, unlike Sil- you know, unlike Silver Surfer, uh, he actually, um, let's see, according to the Marvel thing, they he chose to remain on Earth, even though he was give, he, unlike uh, Silver Surfer, who was sort of bonded to Galactus. Uh, he was actually freed from from that bonding, but Fire Lord remained close to Earth um, because of he had a friend who died on Earth. Um, you know, so he's he's one of the like not Silver Surfer heralds. So he he gen you know he has his own power set. He he does a lot of uh, cool stuff in in terms of you know having still the cosmic energy manip- manip- yeah, manipulation powers, and he of course has fire <laughs> nuclear, <laughs> nuclear fire um and you know he's got he's got the, the standard this the standard uh platter of superhuman strength superhuman uh, durability uh senses and agility which a lot of the cosmic characters do they're they're more tough than your average human and you know like you said he kind of looks like an uh kind of looks like an anime character but I have to dive into uh, Tomati's retelling of the origin. And like I said, uh, he had a fan cast. The actor was Tekoe Tuhaka. Um, again, check, it, check him out on Twitter. Uh, check out uh, Maori, Maori Random. And you can see uh, both on our page and on his page, um, his fan casts, which are, you know, usually amazing. Um, so as per Tomati, uh, this former Herald of Galactus is now powered by Auhitoria, the god of comets. Mura Krill was born on the island, I'm sorry, on the planet Ahi. His life changed when the devourer of worlds Galactus came to feed. In exchange of saving his homeworld, Mura offered himself to Galactus and pledged his service to him. Galactus spared Ahi and imbued Mura with the power cosmic, transforming him into the herald Fire Lord. Fire Lord proved an effective and loyal herald, finding uninhabited worlds for Galactus to consume. On one occasion, they came across a world ruled by a former herald, the Fallen One. A battle begins with the Fallen One launching an attack on Galactus. Fire Lord takes a full energy blast. This provides the opportunity for Galactus to win the battle. Galactus, in return for his loyalty, released Fire Lord from his service as Herald. His act of bravery was so great, it caught the attention of Oha, so Oa Hitura, the god of comets. In Maori traditions, he was responsible for bringing fire to Earth. Oa Tura, provided Fire Lord with an indestructible Ta'ahi long-handled weapon imbued with uh, the life fire. Fire Lord also re- received the vehicle of the heavens, or Tiwaki Tahit Tarangi, uh, a board that when in full flight resembled a flaming comet. Finally, he is sent on his way with the instructions, protect worlds and bring them life. Through his cosmic awareness, he answers a distress call from Earth as a solar storm heads towards it. He arrives just in time to help Maya Monroe, aka Storm, who was attempting to use her powers to control the solar event. Together, they avert crisis. A friendship develops between them. 
He would pledge his allegiance to Maia and her team. Maia collects with him as they're both bestowed by the gods with responsibilities and power to protect. It's Maia who suggests that he would be a better serve protecting other worlds throughout the cosmos. Earth would serve as a second home and the team as his family. With this, new pound, with this newfound purpose, he sets off adventures to protect worlds and life. He would return whenever the Earth and his new family needed him. Murakril, Fire Lord, protector of worlds and life. These narratives always give me chills. These narratives are the single most exciting part of every episode for me, listening to the level of craftsmanship in all of these backstories. The streak continues, super interesting. I wish I was a venture capitalist and I had the money to fund this movie right now. Marvel, if you're out there listening and you want to bankroll the racial draft narratives once you're finished with the Avengers saga, you have it right here. It's already written for you. Great job. Yeah, and, you know, of, of course, the people on Twitter loved it. Uh, fire emojis, which, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> totally unpredictable. Yeah. Um, Annie says, Tamati went deep cosmic. Yes, Team Polynesia is killing it. What else? Where else did we get? More fire, fire emojis. Uh, let's see. Mahesian on Twitter said that, uh, firstly, that the casting is perfect. He's fiery, brave, and staunch. Now he's armed with something every Maori rich wishes they had, an indestructible taia. He loves this. And more fire emojis. Um, let's see. I think, I think that's Mahesian's daughter. Just, you know, so shout out to her. She can just, she, she says, I can just imagine my little cousins jumping around pretending to be Mora Krill with their ties and their <laughs> whatever they can find. Actually, I can imagine my uncles pretending they're Mora Krill as well. And judging by how my, mother's rea- my other mother reacted, I wouldn't mind if Papa did. <laughs> <laughs> so that is amazing. You know, shout out, shout out to everyone in the Polynesian, uh, you know, not just the Polynesian captain, but all the Polynesian fans that we picked up over the last few months. It's the power of storytelling, Mike. That's why we're here, and that's what we're achieving. Yeah. So that brings us to the number four pick, which is uh, from the Asian delegation. The Asian delegation made another one of their uh, defensive picks. Um, They went with Shang-Chi, the master of Kung Fu. Uh, How how familiar are you with Shang-Chi? Pretty familiar with this one, Mike, in the sense that sort of it has sort of a famous historical context and that I believe this character is supposed to be the, the son of Bruce, the son of he's the son of Fu Manchu, but he's actually modeled after Bruce Lee, that essentially. Yes. So I, I feel like sort of from a historical context for purposes of our pod, this is a character that the Asian delegation sort of needed to take and sort of reimagine because he has sort of offensive beginnings, correct? Um, well, so it's, it's, it's kind of weird. Like, th- so they've already done, like, essentially the Fu Manchu character had been licensed by Marvel at the time. And they created this character in the, you know, as an offshoot. But when they lost the rights to Fu Manchu, they already kind of reimagined his origins as a different guy. Um, I want to say his name was Zhang Zhu. Um, it wasn't as offensive as some of the other um, Asian characters created in that era. But just to be clear, Fu Manchu was the paradigmatic racist character, correct? Yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, they've, 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 they've taken steps over the, the many decades to sort of uh, eliminate 
those elements. And I would say that, you know, in terms of modern conceptions of Shang-Chi, it really is, you know, uh, leans more heavily into the Bruce Lee um, analog style. Um, and, and yeah, you know, I, I think that, I think they're, they're going to do a lot with the character in the upcoming years because there's a Shang-Chi movie coming. Right. Mar right. Marvel, uh, played by Simon Liu. And, um, you know, I think in that movie, they they may have uh, another character they've been trying to rehabilitate uh, the the Mandarin, um, potentially his father. Well, all of that is giving sort of a Black Panther vibe right now in terms of what Marvel wants to do with it, right? A sort of huge respect for sort of the cultural origins of the character. Exactly, and and, and but but I do agree with what you said. I think that as far as the Asian delegation is concerned, you know, there he's he's one of the he's one of the big. Uh, big Chinese heroes, and this is an opportunity for them to somewhat tweak, tweak the character to make him an even stronger um, member of the delegation, and potentially just in time for his character to be. Uh, re in fact, there's a new comic uh, later in the year. That I think I want to say September. They're supposed to be relaunching a Shang Chi comic uh, with a uh, Chinese writer, which surprisingly I think the first Chinese writer to write him. Disheartening. Uh, yeah. Oh, sorry, Chinese-American, sorry. Chinese okay. American um, but um, yeah, I think the first, I think for the first time. So, um, you know, I'm sure, I'm sure there's going to be a lot of, a lot of things uh, in, in terms of uh, other, maybe other creators didn't think about because they didn't have that uh, uh, cultural backdrop. Uh, yeah, and I just want to give this nugget to the audience, Mike, for people who are like me. One of the things that I'm learning being on the show with you all all of these characters, regardless of their race, Black, Asian, were created by white people, essentially. So that's a part of why all of this is happening. Right. But let me jump into the reimagined origin, origin as, as it were. Um, you know, first of all, their captain, Ron Solo, said it, was, it would be unfathomable for us to lose Shang-Chi. Um, however, we're going to tweak his backstory to truly be a Chinese-American who was born and raised in the U.S., the preternaturally talented martial artist Shang-Chi is raised primarily by his martial arts master who pushes him with an urgency he doesn't understand. One day Shang-Chi comes home from school to find his Sifu badly beaten and on the verge of death. With her last breaths, she gives Shang-Chi a thumb drive, revealing that his father is an international criminal with children all over being trained from birth to join his elite army. Shang-Chi was to be the best of them, but his Sifu made sure that didn't happen. Now Shang-Chi travels the world to avenge his master against his father and must fight through his half-siblings to get him. You know, it's very, it's, 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 it's very uh, short and to the point. Um, it, it tracks well with, with some of the other uh, backgrounds that we've had in the, in the various reimaginings of the character. Obviously, the international criminal um, is a little malleable depending on the direction that they want to go, but I mean, the only the only difference is that he's Chinese American rather than uh, born in China. Well, Mike, I feel like one of our longest running arguments over the years is whether Iron Fist is a good show. Iron Fist is a good character. I'm wondering historically, is there much overlap between these two characters in terms of team up? Um, they have teamed up. Um, I think typically it's understood that Shang Chi is the better uh, natural fighter, but because of the uh, power of the Iron Fist, the sort of supernatural aspect of the Iron Fist. Uh, he's a, a, a heavier hitter. Um, 
you know, and of course, like I've said in other other contexts, other conversations, really, it really took the pairing with Luke Cage to elevate Iron Fist into a, a character of, uh, ling, you know, on lingering popularity. Um, Shang-Chi really hasn't had that kind of uh, alliance. He just, you know, he's had the, he's had his own book and he sort of pops in and pops out on other people's stories. So it's, it remains to be seen what it will take to push him to the, the A-list, as it were. Honestly, after seeing Black Panther and what happened there, and after seeing all the money that CRA made, I wouldn't be shocked if this ends up becoming huge, both in, both in comic book form and in movie form. I mean, and, and again, it definitely helps to have um, a, a Chinese-American writer at the helm. You know, one of the things that massively helped Black Panther in the 90s was when uh, Christopher Priest, um, one of the I believe the first black writer to write Black Panther um, infused him with all the elements, um, with many of the elements I'd rather, rather that today are kind of essential parts of why people like Black Panther. I think people want this, Mike. I think they want to see these stories told from an authentic perspective. And I think that Marvel was prescient with it on Black Panther, but they're gonna see more of it, people coming out to really support this sort of material. Right. And, uh, you know, he, it, it got, we didn't get a lot of feedback from it, I guess, it, because it was more of a status quo pick. Um, but uh, uh, Tomati said, uh, draft pick is fire. Uh, he almost picked him because Tomati picks everybody. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and he said, uh, you know, he, he, Bruce Lee was one of his uh, favorites growing up. Um, but he said he would have struggled to build a narrative around him. Um, but, you know, he, he gives all the props to the Asian delegation for that pick. And, you know, again, from there, it's important. Uh, he, this is me subtweeting the black delegation. It's important to make sure that some of your great characters don't get snagged up, you know, snagged up. So sometimes you have to make a defensive pick. A uh, black delegation looking at you like, oh, now you tell me. <laughs> Let's see. Um, what else? So the Jewish delegation, Jewish delegation came through. They, with the fifth pick, drafted the Living Tribunal. Now, do you know a lot about the Living Tribunal? I would love to pretend that I did, but of course I don't. <laughs> so the Living Tribunal is one of the, uh, Mar Marvel has a few uh, co uh, cosmic entities that sort of function as, as godlike figures. Because, you know, a lot of the time, the various pantheon gods do get represented as characters in the Marvel Universe. So then it takes uh, these other con conceptual entities that are supposed to represent kind of the bigger celestial um, spiritual uh, con things that bind bind the various uh, universes, whether it's uh, on a multiversal level or it's um, on a, a multi-dimensional level. It's 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 very trippy, so to speak. Um, sometimes it can it can get it can get overwhelming, but typically what happens is when when major major things are happening on the scale of reality there are these beings and one of them is the living tribunal who's who judges um everyone and uh apparently uh, according to the to the marvel page its functions to safeguard the multiverse from an imbalance of mystical forces 
Um, it can act to prevent any one universe from amassing more power than any of the others and upsetting the cosmic balance. Um, it's meant to make sure that the balance of good and evil in the universe is what it is. Um, so it's, it, 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 it casts judgment um, and tries to keep balance. It's, it, it, and, you know, I would say that, you know, as, as both of us are lawyers, it, it, it's supposed to represent that concept of justice, that, that scale. Um, but it's not blind. Instead of being blind, it's got these uh, sort of uh, multi-faces and these glowing lights. And, um, you know, like I said, generally when the Living Tribunal appears, it's in a super trippy comic. I guess the question for you on this, Mike, before you dive, dive into it further, characters like this on this galactic level, mm -hmm. we've talked about it before. Is this race bending or is this race imbuing? Um, it's probably, well, it's, I guess it ties into the idea of like who the default is. You know, if you're making a, if you're rendering a character, um, are you rendering that character it, with a, a default Caucasianness? Um, or are you trying to uh, imbue them with, with distinct characteristics that let you know that they're potentially uh, not white? Um, and, it, you know, it's, it, it, uh, that I would say, you know, it's a shame that we don't have uh, our um, Eli here to tell us, you know, what he would do from an artist's perspective in kind of giving giving characters that dimension. I right. agree that, you know, practically speaking, these, these entities don't have race. Um, and, and they can be rendered in a multitude of ways. And they can be rendered in such a way as to have, you know, especially someone like Living Tribunal who has more faces, you know, he could have different faces of different races. Um, however, it's even more fraught, I would say, given that um, this team, you know, given that this character was drafted by the Jewish delegation, um, because, you know, it's very hard to, to depict Jewishness without kind of dipping into the realm of, yeah. of, you know, of characters and stereotypes. Yeah. Um, Stereotype threat is ever present. Right? Exactly. But as it were, I mean, I think that, I think there's a little bit in the origin, uh, the way that, the way that Annie reimagined the origin of the, of the living tribunal has sort of helped to mitigate some of those uh, stereotype threats. Um, and I'll dive in now. Uh, Hillel Halbalvi sits in a wooden stool in, Pleasant Jerusalem, in, uh, in the Pleasant Jerusalem spring sunshine, holding a bench knife. He's almost finished carving def delicate curling olive leaves into third leg of Delphiki. Hillel Halbalvi is also contemplating economic and restorative justice on this pleasant day in Jerusalem. He's also, he's also just finished perfecting the prosbul in his mind, but no one yet knows it. He pauses, the sun warming his neck and shoulders pleasantly as he straightens his back. To Khan Alam, he, he whispers, this is what must be done. There is quite abruptly a profound sense of wrenching disorientation, and suddenly Hillel the elder, elder is aware of a pleasant golden light everywhere. There is no end to it. He is on another plane of existence, surely. But also there is a smell. It's not quite something he's ever come across before. It's earthy and sweet, and utterly singular, and there is a low, pleasant voice speaking to him. Needless to say, Hillel the Elder is taken aback. It is, this, is this illness brought on by spoiled food, or is he truly in the presence of divinity? Who are you, Hillel the Elder manages to utter, much to his own surprise. But Hillel the Elder is nothing if not always composed. 
Suddenly, a strangely garbed man appears. Thick black hair, matching eyebrows, a handsome striking countenance, purposeful and blunt. He holds a brown smoking cylinder in one hand. So you're the guy who's going to balance the world, the man asks Hillel, clearly amused. I, no, I got a bigger job for you from the bullpen. Hillel is silent because there are many possible things he can say, but he suspects it's better to wait. This man exudes authority. Finally, he asks, who are you? I'm the one above all replies the man, a flash of sly humor across his face. And you, you, my friend, are now the living tribunal. Now go out there and do your job. It will be a strange, marvelous, mind-bending. It'll be strange, marvelous, mind-bending. And now you're all gold, he finishes. And suddenly, Hello, the elder is in fact. No, is in fact. He's quite aware of it as his head divides into the four aspects and becomes detached from what was formerly his body. He's now deathless, the eternal keeper of all realities all dimensions, all voids, all spaces simultaneously. And the authority of the man has spoken. The living tribunal has work to do. Another amazing backstory. Yeah, so I mean, I would say the Jewish delegation leaned on the concepts of justice, um, the strong sense of kind of moral righteousness, and uh, which presumably, you know, given that this is a character that spans multiverses, um, that, you know, whatever whatever that character does is informed by by the teachings uh, of, of, the Jew, of the Jewish faith. So um, let's see. Yeah. So let's see. Let's see how people responded to it. Uh, uh, Martin Sanchez says the Jewish delegation came to play. Um, I believe I believe we got some feedback from. Oh, there we go. The white delegation says the living tribunal. I did not see this coming. And the bits of culture put into their reworking is golden. Ah, I see what they did there. Ah. <laughs> That's uh, Sean, the captain of the white delegation. No doubt, uh, not whitewashing the living uh, tribunal. <laughs> I, I thought that the, uh, oh, Annie, uh, giving a little bit more f- uh, follow-up, said that, uh, yes, I did turn the living, living tribunal into a gigantic golden space Jew, and I'm actually proud of this backstory that I worked into the thread. It's a smidge meta. Yeah, some of the inside jokes is that um, uh, the one above all is, uh, I believe, supposed to be Jack Kirby, the uh, classic uh, comic creator. Huh. So I, I guess in the, in the, the, the vision, the visage of uh, the one above all was meant to be evocative of Jack Kirby. And the reference to something marvelous and the bullpen was uh, also Marvel Comics references. Um. So yeah, I mean, I, I think, like I said, I think there was some a little bit more in terms of the various discords uh, from from the from the delegations. We pretty pretty unanimous with the the support for for the the one above all. I do wonder though, um, as I recall, a lot of uh, there's been a lot of upheaval in the on the cosmic end of the Marvel universe, and I think the Living Tribunal in its current form might be dead. Oh, well, what does that matter in the Marvel Universe, right? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure there's time for the Living Tribunal to return and, and score some points, uh, you know, to the extent that point scoring is a thing that could happen, uh, according to Fantasy Comics League. Or to the extent that points are even a thing on this podcast anymore. <laughs> Still going to talk about the Fantasy Comics League because once <laughs> the draft is over, that's when the competition begins. When people stop being polite and start being real, Mike. That's correct. But in that, related to that, uh, you know, shout out to Sean, who uh, was one of the heads of the Fantasy Comics League, the leader of the white delegation. 
his pick uh, was was in you know in my in my eyes is fairly brilliant. This is a new character, uh, cutting edge, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, a uh, blue blue chip prospect, as it were. This character's name is Punchline. Are you familiar with uh, Punchline? Obviously, since I'm not a heavy comic book reader, and this is a super new character, correct? Basically, the Joker's teammate, girlfriend, homie, Auntie Harley Quinn. What's going on with Punchline, Mike? Essentially, I mean, I'll I'll go ahead. It's it's only a couple characters. I mean, a a couple paragraphs. The new origin. Her first appearance was uh, April 2020 in uh, Batman 89. Wow. Yeah. So uh, she's she's brand new, but she's she's hot in the streets. Her books are, are going like hotcakes. She's uh you know what typically happens with the new characters. They they like to give that character wins right off the bat to establish where they stand. There's so a, from points perspective, there's a lot of points on the table here. Exactly, and also from uh you know figuring out what her intersections are. You have a character like the Joker who's high profile. You have a character like Harley Quinn who's also high profile, and she's positioned as as sort of the Harley Quinn 2.0. Um, so she's got a bone to pick with Harley and she's going to be, you know, probably by the Joker's side, probably uh, squaring off against Batman, showing how formidable she is. And, um, you know, this, so this is her classic origin. Alexis was a student of Snyder College. Snyder College. <laughs> <laughs> she was infatuated with the Joker and eventually came into contact with him through the internet. He taught her how to create Joker venom which she used to experiment on the homeless community. Following a Joker attack in Gotham City, Snyder College hosted a superhero spirit day with Alexis dressing with Joker logos. The Dean went to talk to her, but she exposed him to Joker venom, completing her transformation into Punchline. Punchline was hired as a new underboss by the Joker in lieu of his coming war against Batman after Superman revealed his identity to the world as Clark Kent, and Joker decided that a final battle with Batman using his secret identity in play would be fun. Joker at first, I mean, sorry, Punchline at first was assigned for a stakeout on Catwoman, who had gone to dig a Joker lookalike corpse, not knowing it was one of his gang member, Artie, after the designer sent a message to Selena. He informed the Joker about her and Harley Quinn having found Artie's body, but he stated it's okay as he had a plan as he had to meet a few people first. During Lex Luthor's battle against the Batman Who Laughs, Punchline held Mercy Graves hostage while Joker dealt with Lex for using the help of Dark Multiverse's Batman despite his warnings. Joker, however, let both go, stating it was a joke all along while Lex got what he needed. So as you can see, you know, her, her origin is, uh, you know, interwoven with that of the Joker. And, you know, I can imagine that while there's a lot of, uh, there's been a lot of criticism historically about the Joker-Harley Quinn pairing in terms of it being uh, abusive, I think what they're going to probably want to do with them with uh, Punchline and Joker is make their relationship a lot more bilateral and a lot more equal, probably more akin to kind of the, mat- the natural born killers, um, uh, Mickey Mallory uh, style uh, romance. So, yeah. I, mean, I guess that's part of what I wanted to ask you, Mike, is how often is it that they create brand new characters like this at this level? And is this just the sort of take advantage of the current popularity of Harley Quinn? Or is there something else that they're trying to achieve here? Um, yeah, I mean, they, I think the attempt is always to, you know, creators like to create new characters. And, and it's always the question of whether those characters catch on. Um, and it's, it's, it's gonna, it still does remain to be seen whether in the years to come, um, whether, you know, whether Punchline kind of becomes a Punchline, as it were, 
Ah, I see what you did there, Mike. Because you know she she doesn't stand the test of time. It's you know a lot's going to come. It's it, it's it's unfortunate that you know we're in this in the COVID era where we're they're not going to be cons um, to really gauge uh, how popular the character is in the b- sort of broader community than just readers. Um, typically, I mean that I know that's done a bunch for both um, Harley Quinn. And also um, in in the Marvel on the Marvel side of things, uh, the Spider Gwen character, you know, she was meant to be kind of a one off, but you know, between her books and between people really catching on and wanting to draw the character and and um, cosplay as the character, you know, it really kind of came on, and they realize and the the book uh, the publishers realized that they had something they had something with her, you know, I think that. I don't know how long the current Batman writer is expected to be on the book. He just took over uh, in, in early uh, 2020. So if he's meant to stick around for, you know, three or four years on the book, I'm sure as his creator, he's going to do what he can to, to keep her in the mix. And then it's just a matter of whether that character endures beyond that. But in, in the short run, in the short run, given what we're doing with the draft, it's a very smart pick because you're drafting for the short term and, uh, you know, in, in the hopes that uh, these characters have, have more staying power. I would expect nothing less than this level of savvy from the white delegation. Now, what I will say is that, you know, they haven't really gotten into what um, race punchline is because they haven't. Uh, revealed too much of her origin. And I admit, I haven't, I haven't read uh, these comics yet that, that she makes her appearance in. So I don't know if there are signifiers as to her background. I know a lot of the art depicts her um, as maybe Asian, uh, maybe multiracial. Uh, the picture um, I saw is a little vague. I'm not yeah. sure. Yeah, she's, she's got a little racial ambiguity. Um, but, you know, the makes her perfect for our cast. Yes, but also it makes it perfect for the white delegation to snatch that diversity right away. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Not on Eliminate my- it, corner it wherever it exists in the universe and destroy it. And uh, so what's, um, so Sean, ha- Sean did have his, his uh, backstory for here. It says, do you know, every jo- you know every joke has two parts. Cassie Dwight was a blonde-haired, blue-eyed college girl. It didn't really matter what she was studying. It mattered what she discovered. She realized she was big into domination. And when a new black Joker rolled through Gotham, she fell in line to replace Harley Quinn. Blonde-haired, blue-eyed with a black master. The joke writes itself. Every joke has two parts, the setup and the punchline. You know, uh, I, I love the way that he, I, love, I always love when the, the characters take into account the previous rounds, uh, racial drafting, and incorporates that into the story. Absolutely. So you have this this element of the cosplayer, as it were, um, you know, who who sees this this Joker, and she decides to sort of take it upon herself to uh, abandon this, you know, blonde-haired, blue-eyed, uh, sort of uh, girl next door attitude in order to dive into this this joke of a of a character. So it's you know it'd be it'd be curious to see. To, to see how, you know, both punchline story uh, goes and how, you know, the further reimaginings kind of intersect with each other. Um, you know, as you know, last, last round, we actually, we had Harley Quinn. So uh, in, you know, the one, one gets taken and one gets given, given back. <laughs> and I, I expect some, I don't know what the direction of the comics is essentially, but 
some head-to-head here between Harley and Punchline is a distinct possibility, correct? I mean, right now, it looks like there's been some head-to-head with both Harley and Catwoman. Ah. You know, which are both, which are both uh, members both of drafted. the rest show. Yeah. So this has been a, fr- I mean, you know, so we've got three Bat Family choices out of, you know, out of the, out of the eight. That, that, that's, that's heavy. This has been a strong, it's been a strong Batman world round. Also sort of proves how deep the Batman universe goes in terms of interesting villains. Yeah, for sure. I agree. Um, I got a little feedback from me. I said, uh, swooping in and nabbing a blue chip prospect, a solid pick for Team Caucasity. You know? Mike, did you really just share your own feedback on yes. the pick? Yes, I did. Yes, I did. Uh, follow me on Twitter, MTFIII. <laughs> Hashtag cross promotion. Yeah, yeah. What else? Um, I guess that was it. I, there wasn't there wasn't a ton of, of punchline feedback. I guess people- which makes sense. It's a new character. People are still figuring figuring out where this character is going to go. That's a good point. What? But that doesn't bring us to our next pick. That is the black delegation. You know, as we as as we've we've often joked, the black delegation uh, they're they're unorthodox. <laughs> Never know what we're going to get. Not outside the box. Not aware of a box. <laughs> There is no box. There is no box. As they like say. a spoon. Right. Um, but they came with it this this week, I think. Um, they drafted the sorry. They drafted the inhuman king, Black Bolt. Now are you familiar with Black Bolt? Not so much. I actually was totally confused because I was like, Oh, is this not Black Lightning from the CW television show? But I'm assuming you're gonna tell me they're very different. They are very different. Now I don't know if you watched the uh inhuman i don't know if you watched the inhuman uh oh the super awful show on abc that lasted eight episodes with the guy who couldn't talk because if he talked he would blow up the planet or something yes uh that guy that guy's black bolt um however in the comics he's a much more rich and developed character than Ah. in, in the show and, you know, a lot of people who are fans of the Inhumans are extra angry about how Black Bolt was depicted. So um, Black Bolt, not Black. Total misnomer. Just Black now because the Black delegation drafted him. That is correct. Even though his name is Black Agar Boltagon. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, let, 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 me, uh, let, me, let me jump in real quick just to, for... Uh, for for those people who are uh, somewhat unfamiliar with him, uh, he's the rule of the Inhumans, a reclusive race of genetically altered superhumans. Black Bolt's signature power is his voice, as he as his electron harnessing ability is linked to the speech center of his brain. Speaking tri- triggers a massive disturbance in the form of a highly destructive shockwave capable of leveling a city. Due to the extreme danger posed by his power, the character has undergone rigorous mental training to prevent himself from uttering a sound, even in his sleep. And he usually remains completely silent and speaks through sign language or via spokesperson. Um, yeah, I mean, he's, he's, he's stoic. He's incredibly powerful, both in his, uh, you know, in terms of his physique and his superhuman uh, abilities. He also, of course, has that ability to speak and level mountains and cities. Uh, and, that's, and that's just with a whisper, you know, let alone with a full-blown scream. 
So this is a superpower character that didn't work so well on the television show because it turns out it's hard to develop a character who can never speak. Yes. But it means a lot in terms of potential point scoring. Yes. And it also means, I mean, you know, unfortunately, th- he was uh, kept within the constraints of a, uh, an episodic television budget as opposed to, you know, in a more uh, animated medium or a comic medium where they can actually show what his power can do in full force. Um, you know, you can, you can barely do that on a television show budget. So they did a lot of sidelining. Correct me if I'm wrong, Mike, but the guy who played him on the television show also was the guy who played Captain Pike on the most recent season of Star Trek Discovery? Anton Mount? Yes, that's the guy. And I believe um, it turns out he actually could act, and people love that characterization, and now that Captain Pike show is moving forward. Yes, that is, that is true. Um, so it just goes to show the guy who was the showrunner for the show, Scott Buck, he was also the showrunner for Iron Fist. Um, he is 0 for 2. <laughs> or two for two, as it were, in terms of destroying uh, comic book uh, properties. Unless you agree with me that Iron Fist was actually awesome, but that's neither here nor there, and we can rehash that old argument later. Well, yes, but he only was a showrunner for season one of Iron Fist. Oh, okay. He doesn't get any points then, and your argument stands. Yes. Uh, yeah, he is known, what he is known for is delivering uh, products, projects on time and on the cheap. Same uh, thing I'm known for in my job. But you get what you pay for. But um, yeah, so uh, the Black delegation came through. They, they even went as far as to animate. They went as far as to animate uh, Black Bolt with a little afro uh, on top of his, his helmet. <laughs> Let's see. The Silent King has been groomed to be king since birth. Unable to speak due to his immense powers, he has spent his, his, hot, his lifetime watching and learning about everything. Inhumans do not care about skin color, only about a person's DNA. When Black Bolt came of age, his parents told him of the racism and hatred in the human world. They let him know that his skin tone would only gain him hardship in the world of humans, and it would be best to stay away from them and keep their city hidden. Black Bolt would grow to become one of the most powerful inhumans to ever exist. His voice contains power that can tear a hole in space and time each time he speaks. Most who have challenged him are defeated well before he even spits a full bar in their direction. Word around the campfire is Black Bolt has a book of rhymes that he keeps on deck in case he runs into a big enough threat. Each bar he spits is powerful enough to destroy a solar system. So in this, you know, he, uh, they incorporated a little bit of uh, Black, uh, Black Bolt as a, as a rapper, um, which I, I, you know, that's, that's also par for the course for the Black delegation. Uh, on the nose is their thing, Mike. <laughs> At this point, I wouldn't respect it if they didn't create something completely over my head that bashed me with a hammer, essentially. But uh, yeah, I mean, he's a he's a um, as what's his name said as as Tomati said, a black bolt and Dazzler team up as Dazzler is also on their team, um, combining Dazzler's ability to turn sound into power and Black Bolt's ability. I mean, we've seen it play out in the comics where. Dazzler has become immediate, immensely powerful in the presence of Black Bolt. So this is the first, this is maybe possibly the first instance of a, of a combo, uh, <laughs> of drafting two people who can create a combo together. So I'm wondering, Mike, long-term planning here, long-term strategy that we didn't see in the early rounds I mean, coming to fruition. Four-dimensional chess? <laughs> I was playing checkers. Exactly. Uh, Martin Sanchez, shout out to Martin. 
he says, a character with the power to demolish cities with a single word, great pick. Yeah, there's a... I think if we look at what was missing from the, that lineup, it was power. And, and now they've got some, it seems like. I mean, they had they got Doom in the last round. That's, oh, that, yeah, that's, that's true. Awesome. So they're, they're definitely turning things around in terms of strength. Yeah, I think they're, you know, they're, they're consistently zigging while others are zagging, and, and that's throwing people off. But having said that, that brings us to the last pick of the round, which, uh, you know, often, fairly often, the Latinx delegation comes through and <laughs> kicks over the buildings. And, uh, I feel like they did it again when they drafted Sue Storm, the Invisible Woman one of the more powerful characters that gets consistently slept on due to the fact that she's in the Fantastic Four, but her name's not fantastic. <laughs> I feel like she slept on, Mike, because I'm trying to figure out why she's so powerful if all she does is turn invisible. So that's the thing. That's not all she does. That's, that's her like initial power, uh, turning invisible. But the other power, this sort of less uh, touted, aspect is that she can create invisible force fields um and she can create force fields anywhere so you know i think that in the early stages of of that it they it was used primarily as, as a defensive weapon to protect people in her protective bubble but being able to create force fields anywhere means that you could use those force fields to take away people's ability to breathe. Um, you can, she can put force fields inside of people's body, uh, cutting off their ability um, for the internal organs to work. Um, it's, it's more that she's, she's got all this power that was on the page as far as potential. And it's in recent years that they've been letting her let loose with those powers. So we're looking at one of those simple powers that actually ends up being quite devastating. Like for instance, luck. Um, I would say it's more comparable to a character that, that we, we've talked about on multiple occasions, uh, someone like Iceman. Ah, of course, you know, the legendary Iceman that where, everyone is familiar in the, with. In the early days of Iceman, he was basically a guy who was uh, just... Making some ice. Making some ice, throwing some snowballs. Having a drink. You know, having a drink. <laughs> like, I can freeze every drop of your blood <laughs> in your brain and knock you <laughs> i can create living ice golems you know? so a better de description would be realizing the full potential of the innate power yeah and you know and and now essentially the the way that they've characterized her is you know she has an um, immense compassion and is not looking to uh, hurt anyone um so how you know but she could if she set out to do it and often the thing that's that that sets her off the thing that makes her likely to you know flip the switch from uh fighting defensively to fighting offensively is if someone um you know puts her kids in any kind of danger not without my children exactly you know um because if she was always uh offensively minded then she could probably take out 90 percent of the heroes uh or villains as it were in, in the universe that's certainly educational for me. I, I had no idea this character was considered that powerful. Yeah, I mean, in recent, yeah, she's she's had a, 
she's definitely had some run-ins where uh, in, the, in the most recent, there's a X-Men versus Fantastic Four book that's currently going. And she's pretty much their heaviest hitter in terms of taking out, taking out the X-Men. But, um, you know, I, I, I think you know the basics of her origin. You know, they're tied to the Fantastic Four. I've seen all crappy Fantastic Four movies at least three times. So, definitely. And, but, however, this, uh, you know, a word from the Latinx team went a little different in terms of uh, giving their blurb around the pick. Uh, our contributions to history are either A, never mentioned, or B, stolen from us. Makes us feel unseen. Makes us feel invisible. And then typically when we are seen, it's not always in a good light. Uh, that's a quote from Martin Sanchez. There's enormous diversity in the Latinx community. We come in a, white, a wide range of colors and sizes, in part because we are a socially constructed amalgam, the consequence of a fallen colonial em empire combining European, African, and Asiatic indigenous populations across a geography encompassing large swaths of the Western hemisphere. There's a good chance that anyone you meet in the US could be Latinx. We could be anyone. But that also means our contributions, our history are diluted, especially in the public discourse about our role in America's story. We were portrayed as immigrants, despite Spain being colonial power in what is now the USA and founding some of the earliest cities and states, which later became part of America. Criminal, despite our people occupying positions, offices across universities, boardrooms, and every branch of government, or cops, where we're divided against our own people in a moderate minority duopoly. We are consistently present, but we are invisible. And we feel kinship with one woman in the Marvel Universe who, despite amazing power, an enormous and influential family, and appearances in almost every major Marvel event is constantly forgotten. She is invisible. Oh, and obviously our fan cast is Jessica Alba. Because remember Jessica Alba, Mexican, played Sue Storm? Yeah, that's what I thought. I remember. <laughs> it was the first thing I thought about. But what I also thought about is one of the things that we're encountering on the draft is characters that have actually been slightly race bent or been race bent in movie form but that wasn't addressed in the role or didn't have anything to do with that characterization in an obvious way which is exactly i feel like what happened with jessica alba as sue storm you had the race bin but that didn't have anything to do with the characterization on the screen yeah i mean i almost think that the way they i think that even though they cast jessica alba they still had her playing a white woman well does Jessica Alba play Mexican-American characters as a general proposition, or is she essentially playing white characters in most of her roles? That's a, that is, that's a good question. I mean, I don't know enough about, about her filmography. Um, I know that in the, in the Robert Rodriguez movies, in the um, you know, Machete movies, she's playing Mexican. But um, yeah, I mean... I'd have to go through a filmography. I think that I know that there were, there were times that she was, uh, it seemed that she was de-emphasizing uh, aspects of her, of her culture in the early parts of her career, and, you know, which is unfortunately what happens in Hollywood with certain actresses that if they have the ability to pass as white or the, you know, or the ability to take on roles where race is not um, highlighted, they often do because otherwise they're going to, not get the highest of profile roles. I well, Mike, that never happens on our show. So I want to take this moment to invite Jessica to <laughs> the Racial Draft Podcast to discuss her character on Fantastic Four and its potential Mexican-American or Mexican roots. Yeah. I mean, and I think that it does raise some questions. I mean, generally, um, you know, Johnny Storm, the Human Torch, um, is typically depicted as a white guy as well. 
Uh, he was also depicted as white in that movie. Um, Notable, you know, the notable exception, of course, is this was the 2014 Fantastic Four movie where Michael B. Jordan played uh, Johnny Storm. And, you know, I, I felt bad because uh, of the things, of the many things wrong about the movie, uh, the fact that Johnny Storm was black was way, way, way down on the list of things to criticize about the movie. But unfortunately, there are a lot of people that even before the movie came out who are critical of the casting. Um, and you know, it, 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 it bears questioning whether uh, people will be reluctant to uh, race bend uh, Johnny Storm in the coming in the coming weeks. Despite uh, I don't I, I have to agree with you there, Mike. I don't think the problem is the race bending. I think the problem is the crappy movie, because if you look at Michael B. Jordan, same thing with Chris Evans. Both of them managed to survive being in fantastic four movies to go on to some of the most iconic comic book roles of all time. Yeah, that, that you know, and, and, and what's what, what's weird is that I think that in a lot of ways, I mean, he's not a list. He's, you know, uh, but I think Johnny Storm is one of the more well-known uh, comic book characters. Um, again, probably not A-list, but you know, I think that there's there's room for a an iconic uh, casting for Johnny Storm to make people kind of really enjoy the character in, in the in the modern in the modern uh, stage. I've told you before, Mike. I, I definitely feel like the internet peanut gallery, the people who hated the Michael B. Jordan casting in Fantastic Four. They are definitely a loud minority, but I don't know how numerous they are. It's just that you hear them because they, they roll deep in internet circles. That's probably true. But uh, let's, so let's jump, into, let's jump into the feedback. There was a lot of feedback. Uh, Annie, for, uh, you know, who attempted to get Sue Storm a few weeks back, if you remember, in the poll, uh, she gave a hearty, God damn it. <laughs> um, a little back. warning for the children out there. We're going to have Which to I would say, you know, when you try to draft, when you try to get somebody in the poll and you don't get them in the poll, maybe you try to draft them in the next round because <laughs> they're out there. People know that you want them. And uh, S, the captain said, Sue Storm is a billion thing. So Sue Storm is in a billion things and everyone forgets that she's there, which is why we're so deep in the draft and no one has picked her. This absolute point scorer, Fantastic Four, the whole mutant verse stuff going on, Empire, she's in all of it. The Latinx team shall not have it. <laughs> Martin Sanchez uh, gave a quote on Twitter, uh, sorry, a link on Twitter to that quote about the uh, invisibility of, uh, of being Latinx. Uh, Tomaty, oh, sorry, Martin also uh, put, in, put in some telenovela gifts of... Uh, celebration of, of having Sue Storm on their team. The, uh, but Tomedy said, a Latin Sue Storm makes a lot of sense to me. She exudes that auntie energy. Saludo, auntie Sue. Uh, Chris Wright, who's I think new to, to the comments on Twitter, said, uh, good pick. Uh, he, he also wanted to know if we got it, if, if they get her kids by proxy. And, and officially, as the commissioner, I say they do not get her kids by proxy. <laughs> um, it still remains to be seen. Even though there's now white uh, Reed Richards and Latinx Sue Storm, it, uh, Franklin Richards and Valeria Richards are still up for grabs to be drafted by any of the other delegations. And Mike, can I go back to Jessica Alba for a second? I'm yes. doing some on-the-fly research here, refreshing my recollection over Fantastic Four. 
Did you remember that they gave her blonde hair and blue eyes for that role? Um, I, I did because I was looking at the picture. <laughs> That's mind-blowing. I didn't remember that at all. Stunningly disturbing. So I reiterate my invitation for her to come on the show. But uh, yeah, I mean, I do think that... Um, Definitely a concern there, right? I, I, I didn't remember that. That's pretty awful for, for a modern-day characterization of, of anyone. Yeah, but I mean, there are blonde-haired, blue-eyed Mexican people, so it's 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 doable. But the question here is intent, right? The goal of this, if we're looking at it honestly, was to take her away from perceived Mexican-American heritage. It didn't have anything to. It was to make her look non-Mexican-American. I think the intent is the, is the issue here. Not that you can be Mexican-American and have blonde hair and blue eyes, which of course is totally fine. It's what the studio was doing here to appeal to a certain demographic. Oh, for sure. I mean, I do think the intent was to uh, have her look as much like the comic version of Sue Storm as possible. Um, and giving her the blonde hair and the blue eyes was, was their attempt. And, and again, having, having her brother be blonde hair and blue eyed as well was also uh, the furtherance of that intent. Um, I think that this is, I think we talked about this before when it comes to um, whether there's a sort of benign uh, explanation for for people who are fans of a comic character um, who see that character in so many panels looking a certain way, uh, wanting in live action to see that character depicted as close to those panels as possible. And, and that being a cause for many of them being resistant to the race bending. Not, you know, they, they may otherwise understand the importance of diversity, but just for certain characters, just want to see those characters uh, rendered in, in real life like they are in the panels. And, and I get that. I, 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 I try as much as I can to be sympathetic to that idea. Uh, but I, but I recognize that that sometimes, sometimes the characters just better performed by uh by by a different actor, and you have to even if you even if you feel a certain kind of way about the character not looking like the way they are depicted in a comic, if you can get past that and recognize that the other characteristics of the character that go beyond the way they look can be uh, portrayed well by people of all different backgrounds. I'd like to believe that you can overcome that initial resistance to the race ban. I just, I just wonder if Michael B. Jordan being black had anything whatsoever to do with the opening weekend box office for that fantastic horror movie when everyone in the universe just knew it was horrible. Yeah. I mean, I, I would say in that instance, you had um, the bad reviews were the cause, but the people who were already rooting for it to fail um, felt vindicated. And that's unfortunate. Well, not for Michael B. Jordan, because if he was locked in Fantastic Four, then he probably wouldn't have been available to do the greatest role of his career so far. Fair point. <laughs> Fair point. Uh, uh, fire emojis for, uh, I guess, after Annie, Annie overcame her, you know, her damn yous, <laughs> uh, gave fire emojis to this pick. It's a, I mean, it's a really great pick. I mean, the, the, the Latinx team is just, just balling out of control with, with the, the people that they're, they're uh, scoring. Is that, is that the Latinx team's first female character? 
I'd have to think back on it, but it wouldn't surprise me if that's correct, but I'd have to look back over the round. Yeah, I mean, I know, I know that we, I know that we were kind of joking about it uh, a couple weeks ago, and I can't remember who they drafted in the last couple of rounds. Well, you know what they say, Mike, quality over quantity. Well, look, I mean, they also say that the draft is young. You know, it's only, it's only the seventh round, and there are many, many picks to go. But, I mean, I, right now, I do think, right now, I do think the Lennox team is running away with it. Um, that's my own, my own personal take on it. Yes, because the Latinx team in round five drafted uh, Black Panther, and in round six drafted Shazam. So I, I believe this is, I believe every team now, I believe every team now has a female character. Well, as of last week's show, we learned we need to restore some gender balance to the show, Mike. So we're trying to achieve that in the picks now going forward, hopefully. Yeah, hopefully uh, properly shited <laughs> by and shamed. We uh, live and we learn. Exactly. But um, yeah, so I mean, that round, that actually rounds out our, you know, that rounds out our, our rounds. Um, what would you like to see in the eighth round? I think I'm, I'm happy to see sort of we're getting deeper into the rounds now. So the character picks are, are getting a bit further afield than me as an amateur would be familiar with. But what's great about that is that's a chance for me to increase and learn my level of comic book knowledge. And every time I see the backstory or do a little research on a character I'm not familiar with, I feel like I'm growing as a person. I'm learning a lot about comic book history that I wasn't aware of. So I'm excited to see that continue. Right. I mean, I'm, su- I'm actually surprised that there are still as many big names on the board as, they, as, they, as there are. Um, I'm, I'm, it's going to be interesting to see how, how, how they play out, whether, you know, one thing that happens in fantasy football is that you'll get a run. You know, I, th- I think we, we had something similar to a run with the uh, Batman characters this, this round where it seemed like everyone kind of said, oh, this might be a round I, I need to get my Batman character if I want a Batman character on my team. Uh, the last two rounds, I would say, was, was, uh, was where, where that came into play. I think that, you know, you might see some of that. Um, I think a couple of rounds back, we had a villain run um, where everyone felt like this might be where, where the good time, a good time to get a high-profile villain. So it's going to be interesting to see what trends, uh, whether, actually, it'll be interesting to see, A, whether some of these picks are going to be influenced by the other picks that are happening around them, particularly in a week where we won't have a poll. You know, this will be a week where people will just be straight drafting. And all everything's of, available. Everything's available. Everyone's a lot. Everyone's, uh, uh, no one's locked. So, you know, maybe there'll be some defensive drafting. Maybe there'll be some um, strategic, I, I need to draft this character because this character's already been targeted uh, by some other delegations in previous drafts. You know, I'm curious. I'm curious how, how, how much strategy uh, kicks in because, you know, as you know from, from doing fantasy football, these, these, mid, these mid to late rounds are where, you know, are where the, the sleepers are, are to be found and where drafts can be won. Well, I wonder, Mike, and I don't know what your assessment of this is at this point, do we think people are focused on drafting for points? Are they really at this point drafting to sort of craft the story, the narrative that they want to tell as a priority? See, I, I, think it's, I, I think it's the latter, but I think, that you, I think that what you would ideally want to do is get your character first, get the character that you want first, and then create the story for that character. 
rather than have these characters that you have these stories for and and lead with who you think has has the better story because you may not you may miss out on a character that you really want. Well, you may miss out on points, but you'll put the story that you want to tell at the top no, 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 of the draft board. I mean, that's a fair point. But I, I guess what I'm saying is that part of the strategy is you could get both of the characters if you if you make sure that you draft the character that less people are targeting first. And then you can, on the, the next round, get the character. You know, if, you, if you're aware of, of what, of what the other, char- the other uh, captains are doing, and you draft around what you think they're, um, whether they're targeting your characters or not, you can get more of your characters rather than be fully reactive and sort of, like you, I mean, I, I agree. If you're leading with, if you're leading with who's remaining has the best story, then you'll get more of your stories out. Um, sorry, you'll get the stories out in the order that you want to get the stories out, but you might not get all the stories out that you want to get out because the characters that you've targeted might have gotten scooped out by some right you know so that's that's the that i think that it'll it it, it kind of depends and i haven't really talked to people i think towards the end i'll ask people how they prepped and you know how what what their what their what everyone's process was and, you know i don't want i don't want to give anyone any kind of disadvantage uh in the terms of the next coming rounds by having them say what their strategy is and having people come up with a counter strategy. But I am curious as to whether people are, you know, and I know that the black delegation has bragged about having, about how many characters they have like lined up. Their draft board is a hundred deep, I imagine. Yeah. You know, <laughs> with characters no one's ever heard of. <laughs> I mean, they, they are, they are the Kings of the deep cut digging in the crates. So I wouldn't be surprised if you know they're still given, you know, giving mid-round value in the tenth and the eleventh round, just because of how deep their bench goes, um, and they're, you know, they 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 came with the Dune pick, they came with this, uh, uh, with the Black Bolt pick. They're they're wily. They are wily. I wonder if they're responding to critiques or this is what they planned all along, and we might not find that out for several weeks. Yeah. Um, you know, obviously, I think I think the white delegation is is kind of stunting on people. Um, you know, I think they like stirring stirring the pot. That's what they're here for. Yeah, we'd expect think, nothing less from the white delegation. Yeah, and I think they're going to continue to stir the pot while also having an eye towards the FCL, the Fantasy Comics League point. Shout out to them, Fantasy uh, Famous Fantasy Comics LG on Twitter. If you like to follow them, um, and you know their 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 fun resource but um you know he obviously he wants he wants to score points i know kia wants to score points um i think you know i think the latinx team is just they're just looking at who the heaviest hitters are who the biggest players are and uh i I think i i I do think they're 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 doing what i what i was saying to do find your best find the best character on the board get that character and then come up with a story for the character after um and you know like i said i think that i think they're winning i think the asian delegation is 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 hot on their heels and you know it's going to be curious to see who finishes up strong i think there's going to be a lot of plot twists mike yeah when the scoring starts and you know if listeners out there you know hit us up uh give us your assessment of uh who's winning the draft so far who are the characters that you really liked in this in this round which characters you're hoping see get drafted in upcoming rounds um, hit us up on uh, racial draft pod 
on Twitter. Hit us up on Facebook in the Racial Draft. Hit us up on, uh, I think it's Racial, racial Hyphen Draft, well, Racial Dot Draft, sorry, on, um, on Instagram. We're, we're everywhere. Oh, I'm everywhere. <laughs> um, and yeah, like, uh, do you have any final thoughts about, about what's, what's, what's going on with the draft? Uh, I think the, the draft is looking great. Super excited to see what the next round holds. Uh, Jessica, uh, my blistering critique today of Fantastic Four, if you think that was unfair, feel free to come on the show, fight me. I'm open-minded. Yes. Explain things. So Jessica Alba, you have a standing invitation to pop on this podcast anytime um, and revert my critique because I admit I'm not always the most informed. I would love to hear your take on that role in Fantastic Four. In fact, I think I'm going to make it my mission to get Jessica Alba on the show, Mike. Yeah, I'm going to try to slide into her DMs. And, uh, <laughs> oh, I like that little grown-up. Uh, yeah, and I'll give her a link to the, to the Zoom <laughs> and see if she'll take us up on the offer. Looking forward to having Jessica on, Mike. Yeah, you know, uh, I'll, I'll make sure. It'll be, it'll be a surprise like, like, like it always is, but, you know, I'm sure we can find a way to squeeze her in. Of course. <laughs> but, you yeah. You me. But, yeah, so, you know, it's been a short show this week, but hopefully everyone's uh, having a – a great weekend staying safe out there. Um, you know, uh, love to everyone who is a father, who's a potential father, um, and wants to be, <laughs> um, you know, everyone who's, uh, thumbs down everyone who's a deadbeat dad. This is not your day, but thumbs up if you didn't want to do it, but you still stepped up to the plate. That is right. Exactly. Um, you know, so happy father's day to the, to the world. Happy father's day week. Uh, uh, thumbs down to certain people who are, uh, destroying the country from within. <laughs> Thumbs up to the people who are trying to uh, elevate the justice in the, in the, in the world. And um, until next time, all things are possible. Thank you.